0: Section 34 of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy The Warren Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Warren Cotty, Gurnee, Illinois Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy The Warren Commission Report By the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy Chapter 6 Investigation of Possible Conspiracy Part 11 Possible Conspiracy Involving Jack Ruby Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald at 11.21 a.m., on Sunday, November 24, 1963, shortly after Ruby entered the basement of the Dallas Police Department. Almost immediately, speculation arose that Ruby had acted on behalf of members of a conspiracy who had planned the killing of President Kennedy and wanted to silence Oswald. This section of Chapter 6 sets forth the Commission's investigation into the possibility that Ruby, Together with Oswald or with others, conspired to kill the president, or that Ruby, though not part of any such conspiracy, had accomplices in the slaying of Oswald. Presented first are the results of the Commission's detailed inquiry into Ruby's actions from November 21 to November 24. In addition, this section analyzes the numerous rumors and suspicions that Ruby and Oswald were acquainted and examines Ruby's background and associations for evidence of any conspiratorial relationship or motive. A detailed life of Ruby is given in Appendix 16, which provides supplemental information about Ruby and his associations. Ruby's Activities from November 21 to November 24, 1963 the Commission has attempted to reconstruct as precisely as possible the movements of Jack Ruby during the period November 21 through November 24, 1963. It has done so in the premise that, if Jack Ruby were involved in a conspiracy, his activities and associations during this period would, in some way, have reflected the conspiratorial relationship. The Commission has not attempted to determine the time at which Ruby first decided to make his attack on Lee Harvey Oswald, nor does it purport to evaluate the psychiatric and related legal questions which have arisen from the assault upon Oswald. Ruby's activities during this three-day period have been scrutinized, however, for the insight they provide into whether the shooting of Oswald was grounded in any form of conspiracy. THE EVE OF THE PRESIDENT'S VISIT on Thursday, November 21, Jack Ruby was attending to his usual duties as the proprietor of two Dallas night spots, the Carousel Club, a downtown nightclub featuring striptease dancers, and the Vegas Club, a rock and roll establishment in the Oak Lawn section of Dallas. Both clubs opened for business each day in the early evening and continued seven days a week until after midnight. Ruby arrived at the Carousel Club at about 3 p.m. Thursday afternoon, as was his custom, and remained long enough to chat with a friend and receive messages from Larry Crawford, a handyman and helper who lived at the Carousel. Earlier in the day, Ruby had visited with a young lady who was job-hunting in Dallas, paid his rent for the Carousel premises, conferred about a peace bond he had been obliged to post as a result of a fight, with one of his striptease dancers, consulted with an attorney about problems he was having with federal tax authorities, distributed membership cards for the Carousel Club, talked with Dallas County Assistant District Attorney William F. Alexander about insufficient fund checks, which a friend had passed, and submitted advertising copy for his nightclubs to the Dallas Morning News. Ruby's evening activities on Thursday, November 21, were a combination of business and pleasure. At approximately 7.30 p.m., he drove Larry Crawford to the Vegas Club, which Crawford was overseeing because Ruby's sister, Eva Grant, who normally managed the club, was convalescing from a recent illness. Thereafter, Ruby returned to the Carousel Club and conversed for about an hour with Lawrence Myers, a Chicago businessman. Between 9.45 and 10.45 p.m., Ruby had dinner with Ralph Paul, his close friend and financial backer. While dining, Ruby spoke briefly with a Dallas Morning News employee, Don Campbell, who suggested that they go to the Castaway Club, but Ruby declined. Thereafter, Ruby returned to the Carousel Club, where he acted as master of ceremonies for his show, and peacefully ejected an unruly patron. At about midnight, Ruby rejoined Myers in the bon vivant room, of the Dallas Cabana, where they met Myers' brother and sister-in-law. Neither Ralph Paul nor Lawrence Myers recalled that Ruby mentioned the president's trip to Dallas. Leaving Myers at the Cabana after a brief visit, Ruby returned to close the Carousel Club and obtain the night's receipts. He then went to the Vegas Club, which he helped Clary Crawford close for the night, and, as late as 2.30 a.m., Ruby was seen eating at a restaurant near the Vegas Club. Friday morning at the Dallas Morning News. Jack Ruby learned of the shooting of President Kennedy while in the second-floor advertising offices of the Dallas Morning News, five blocks from the Texas School Book Depository, where he had come Friday morning to place regular weekend advertisements for his two nightclubs. On arriving at the newspaper building at about 11 or 11.30 a.m., he talked briefly with two newspaper employees concerning some diet pills he had recommended to them ruby then went to the office of morning news columnist tony zoppi where he states he obtained a brochure on his new master of ceremonies that he wanted to use in preparing copy for his advertisements proceeding to the advertising department he spoke with advertising employee don campbell from about noon until twelve twenty five p m when campbell left the office in addition to the business at hand much of the conversation concerned ruby's unhappiness over the financial conditions of his clubs and his professed ability to handle the physical fights which arose in connection with the clubs. According to Campbell, Ruby did not mention the presidential motorcade, nor did he display any unusual behavior. About ten minutes after the president had been shot, but before word had spread to the second floor, John Newnham, an advertising department employee, observed Ruby sitting at the same spot where Campbell had left him. At that time, Ruby had completed the advertisement, which he had apparently begun to compose when Campbell departed and was reading a newspaper. To Newnham, Ruby voiced criticism of the black-bordered advertisement entitled, Welcome Mr. Kennedy, appearing in the morning paper and bearing the name of Bernard Weissman as the chairman of the committee sponsoring the advertisement. See Commission Exhibit Number 1031, page 294. According to Eva Grant, Ruby's sister, he had telephoned her earlier in the morning to call her attention to the ad. At about 12.45 p.m., an employee entered the office and announced that shots had been fired at the president. Newnham remembered that Ruby responded with a look of stunned disbelief. Shortly afterward, according to Newnham, confusion reigned in the office as advertisers telephoned to cancel advertising they had placed for the weekend. Ruby appears to have believed that some of these cancellations were motivated by the Weissman advertisement. After Newnham accepted a few telephone calls, he and Ruby walked toward a room where other persons were watching television. One of the newspaper employees recalled that Ruby then appeared, obviously shaken in a ashen color, just very pale, showed little disposition to converse, and sat for a while with a dazed expression in his eyes after a few minutes ruby placed telephone calls to andrew armstrong his assistant at the carousel club and to his sister mrs grant he told armstrong if anything happens we are going to close the club and said he would see him in about thirty minutes during the call to his sister ruby again referred to the weissman advertisement at one point he put the telephone to noonam's ear and noonam heard mrs grant exclaim my god what do they want it was Newman's recollection that Ruby tried to calm her. Ruby testified that after calling his sister, he said, John, I will have to leave Dallas. Ruby explained to the commission, I don't know why I said that, but it is a funny reaction that you feel. The city is terribly let down by the tragedy that happened. And I said, John, I am not opening up tonight. And I don't know what else transpired. I know people were just heartbroken. I left the building and I went down and got in my car, and I couldn't stop crying. Nuneum estimated that Ruby departed from the morning news at about 1.30 p.m., but other testimony indicated that Ruby may have left earlier. Ruby's Alleged Visit to Parkland Hospital the commission has investigated claims that Jack Ruby was at Parkland Hospital at about 1.30 p.m. when a presidential press secretary, Malcolm Kilduff, announced that President Kennedy was dead. Seth Cantor, a newspaperman who had previously met Ruby in Dallas, reported and later testified that Jack Ruby stopped him momentarily inside the main entrance to Parkland Hospital sometime between 1.30 and 2.00 p.m. Friday November 22, 1963. The only person besides Cantor who recalled seeing Ruby at the hospital did not make known her observation until April 1964, had never seen Ruby before, allegedly saw him only briefly then, had an obstructed view, and was uncertain of the time. Ruby has firmly denied going to Parkland and has stated that he went to the carousel club upon leaving the morning news. Videotapes of the scene at Parkland do not show Ruby there, although Cantor can be seen. Investigation has limited the period during which Cantor could have met Ruby at Parkland Hospital on Friday to a few minutes before and after 1.30 p.m. Telephone company records and the testimony of Andrew Armstrong established that Ruby arrived at the Carousel Club no later than 1.45 p.m. and probably a few minutes earlier. Cantor was engaged in a long-distance telephone call to his Washington office from 1.02 p.m. until 1.27 p.m. Cantor testified that, after completing that call, he immediately left the building from which he had been telephoning, traveled perhaps 100 yards, and entered the main entrance of the hospital. It was there, as he walked through a small doorway, that he believed he saw Jack Ruby, who, Cantor said, tugged at his coattails and asked, should I close my places for the next three nights, do you think? Cantor recalled that he turned briefly to Ruby and proceeded to the press conference at which the president's death was announced. Cantor was certain he encountered Ruby at Parkland, but had doubts about the exact time and place. Cantor probably did not see Ruby at Parkland Hospital in the few minutes before or after one thirty p.m., the only time it would have been possible for Cantor to have done so. If Ruby immediately returned to the Carousel Club after Cantor saw him, it would have been necessary for him to have covered the distance from Parkland in approximately 10 or 15 minutes in order to have arrived at the club before 1.45 p.m., when a telephone call was placed at Ruby's request to his entertainer, Karen Bennett Carlin. At a normal driving speed under normal conditions, the trip can be made in 9 or 10 minutes. However, it is likely that congested traffic conditions on November 22 would have extended the driving time. Even if Ruby had been able to drive from Parkland to the carousel in 15 minutes, his presence at the Dallas Morning News until after 1 p.m. and at the carousel prior to 1.45 p.m. would have made his visit at Parkland exceedingly brief. Since Ruby was observed at the Dallas Police Department during a two-hour period after 11 p.m. on Friday, when Cantor was also present, and since Cantor did not remember seeing Ruby there, Cantor may have been mistaken about both the time and the place that he saw Ruby. When seeing Ruby, Cantor was preoccupied with the important event that a press conference represented. Both Ruby and Cantor were present at another important event, a press conference held about midnight November 22, in the assembly room of the Dallas Police Department. It is conceivable that Cantor's encounter with Ruby occurred at that time, perhaps near the small doorway there. Ruby's Decision to Close His Clubs Upon arriving at the Carousel Club shortly before 1.45 p.m., Ruby instructed Andrew Armstrong, the carousel's bartender, to notify employees that the club would be closed that night. During much of the next hour, Ruby talked by telephone to several persons who were or had been especially close to him. And the remainder of the time, he watched television and spoke with Armstrong and Larry Crawford about the assassination. At 1.51 p.m., Ruby telephoned Ralph Paul in Arlington, Texas, to say that he was going to close his clubs. He urged Paul to do likewise with his drive-in restaurant. Unable to reach Alice Nichols, a former girlfriend who was at lunch, Ruby telephoned his sister, Eileen Kaminsky, in Chicago. Mrs. Kaminsky described her brother as completely unnerved and crying about President Kennedy's death. To Mrs. Nichols, whose return call caused Ruby to cut short his conversation with Mrs. Kaminsky, Ruby expressed shock over the assassination. Although Mrs. Nichols had dated Ruby for nearly 11 years, she was surprised to hear from him on November 22, since they had not seen one another socially for some time. Thereafter, Ruby telephoned at 2.37 p.m. to Alex Gruber, a boyhood friend from Chicago who was living in Los Angeles. Gruber recalled that in their three-minute conversation, Ruby talked about a dog he had promised to send Gruber, a car wash business Gruber had considered starting, and the assassination. Ruby apparently lost his self-control during the conversation and terminated it. However, two minutes after that call ended, Ruby telephoned again to Ralph Paul. Upon leaving the Carousel Club at about 3.15 p.m., Ruby drove to Eva Grant's home but left soon after he arrived to obtain some weekend food for his sister and himself. He first returned to the Carousel Club and directed Larry Crawford to prepare a sign indicating that the club would be closed. However, Ruby instructed Crawford not to post a sign until later in the evening to avoid informing his competitors that he would be closed. See commission exhibit 2427 page 339 Before leaving the club ruby telephoned mrs grant who reminded him to purchase food as a result he went to the ritz delicatessen about two blocks from the carousel club and bought a great quantity of cold cuts ruby probably arrived a second time at his sister's home close to 5:30 p.m. and remained for about 2 hours he continued his rapid rate of telephone calls ate sparingly became ill and attempted to get some rest while at the apartment ruby decided to close his clubs for three days he testified that after talking to don saffron a columnist for the dallas times herald i put the receiver down and talked to my sister i said eva what shall we do and she said jack let's close for the three days she said we don't have anything anyway but we owe it to chokes up. So I called Don Saffron back immediately, and I said, Don, we decide to close for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And he said, OK. Ruby then telephoned the Dallas Morning News to cancel his advertisement, and, when unable to do so, he changed his ad to read that his clubs would be closed for the weekend. Ruby also telephoned Cecil Hamlin, a friend of many years. Sounding very broken up, he told Hamlin that he had closed the club since he thought most people would not be in the mood to visit them, and that he felt concerned for President Kennedy's kids. Thereafter, he made two calls to ascertain when services at Temple Shirith Israel would be held. He placed a second call to Alice Nichols to tell her of his intention to attend those services, and phoned Larry Crawford at the carousel to ask whether he had received any messages. Eva Grant testified. When he was leaving, he looked pretty bad. This I remember. I can't explain it to you. He looked too broken. A broken man already. He did make the remark. He said, I never felt so bad in my life, even when Ma or Pa died. So I said, well, Pa was an old man. He was almost 89 years. Friday Evening Ruby is uncertain whether he went directly from his sister's home to his apartment or possibly first to his club. At least five witnesses recall seeing a man they believe was Ruby on the third floor of police headquarters at times they have estimated between 6 and 9 p.m. However, it is not clear that Ruby was present at the police and courts building before 11 p.m. With respect to three of the witnesses, it is doubtful that the man observed was Ruby. Two of those persons had not known Ruby previously and described wearing apparel, which differed both from Ruby's known dress that night and from his known wardrobe. The third, who viewed from the rear the person he believed was Ruby, said the man unsuccessfully attempted to enter the homicide office. Of the police officers on duty near homicide at the time of the alleged event, only one remembered the episode, and he said the man in question definitely was not Ruby. The remaining witnesses knew or talked with Ruby and their testimony leaves little doubt that they did see him on the third floor at some point on Friday night. However, the possibility remains that they observed Ruby later in the evening when his presence is conclusively established. Ruby has denied being at the police department Friday night before approximately 11.15 p.m. In any event, Ruby eventually returned to his own apartment before 9 p.m. There he telephoned Ralph Paul, but was unable to persuade Paul to join him at synagogue services. Shortly after 9 p.m., Ruby called the Chicago home of his oldest brother, Hyman Rubenstein, and two of his sisters, Marion Carroll and Ann Volpert. Hyman Rubenstein testified that, during the call, his brother was so disturbed about the situation in Dallas that he mentioned selling his business and returning to Chicago. From his apartment, Ruby drove to Temple Templeshireth, Israel, arriving near the end of a two-hour service which had begun at 8 p.m. Rabbi Hillel Silverman, who greeted him among the crowd leaving the services, was surprised that Ruby, who appeared depressed, mentioned only his sister's recent illness and said nothing about the assassination. Ruby related that, after joining in the post-service refreshments, he drove by some nightclubs, noticing whether or not, they had been closed, as his were. He testified that, as he drove toward town, a radio announcement that the Dallas police were working overtime prompted the thought that he might bring those at police headquarters something to eat. At about 10.30 p.m. he stopped at a delicatessen near the Vegas club and purchased eight kosher sandwiches and ten soft drinks. From the delicatessen he called the police department, but was told that the officers had already eaten. He said he then tried to offer the food to the employees at radio station KLIF but failed in several attempts to obtain the private nightline number to the station. On three occasions between phone calls, Ruby spoke with a group of students whom he did not know, lamenting the president's death, teasing one of the young men about being too young for his clubs, borrowing their copy of the Dallas Times-Herald to see how his advertisements had been run and stating that his clubs were the only ones that had closed because of the assassination. He also expressed the opinion, as he had earlier in the day, that the assassination would be harmful to the convention business in Dallas. Upon leaving the delicatessen with his purchases, Ruby gave the counterman, as a tip, a card granting free admission to his clubs. He drove downtown to the police station where he has said he hoped to find an employee from KLIF who could give him the hotline phone number for the radio station. The Third Floor of Police Headquarters Ruby is known to have made his way, by about 11.30 p.m., to the third floor of the Dallas Police Department, where reporters were congregated near the Homicide Bureau. Newsman John Rutledge, one of those who may well have been mistaken as to time, gave the following description of his first encounter with Ruby at the police station. I saw Jack and two out-of-state reporters, whom I did not know, leave the elevator door and proceed toward those television cameras, to go around the corner where Captain Fritz's office was. Jack walked between them. These two out-of-state reporters had big press cards pinned on their coats, great big red ones. I think they said, President Kennedy's Visit to Dallas Press, or something like that. And Jack didn't have one but the man on either side of him did and they walked pretty rapidly from the elevator area past the policeman and jack was bent over like this writing on a piece of paper and talking to one of the reporters and pointing to something on the piece of paper he was kind of hunched over detective augustus m everhart who also recalled that he first saw ruby earlier in the evening said ruby carried a notepad and professed to be a translator for the israeli press he remembered Ruby's remarking how unfortunate the assassination was for the city of Dallas and that it was hard to realize that a complete nothing, a zero like that, could kill a man like President Kennedy. Videotapes confirmed Ruby's statement that he was present on the third floor when Chief Jesse E. Curry and District Attorney Henry M. Wade announced that Oswald would be shown to the newsmen at a press conference in the basement. Though he has said his original purpose was only to locate a KLIF employee, Ruby has stated that while at the police station he was carried away with the excitement of history. He accompanied the newsmen to the basement to observe Oswald. His presence at the midnight news conference is established by television tapes and by at least 12 witnesses. When Oswald arrived, Ruby, together with a number of newsmen, was standing atop a table on one side of the room. See Commission Exhibit Number 2424, page 341. Oswald was taken from the room after a brief appearance, and Ruby remained to hear reporters question District Attorney Wade. During the press conference, Wade stated that Oswald would probably be moved to the county jail at the beginning of the next week. In answer to one question, Wade said that Oswald belonged to the Free Cuba Committee, a few reporters spoke up, correcting Wade, and among the voices was that of Jack Ruby. Ruby later followed the district attorney out of the press conference, walked up to him, and, according to Wade, said, Hi, Henry. Don't you know me? I am Jack Ruby. I run the Vegas Club. Ruby also introduced himself to Justice of the Peace David L. Johnston, shook his hand, gave Johnston a business card to the Carousel Club, and, upon learning Johnston's official position, shook Johnston's hand again. After talking with Johnston, he gave another card to Icarus M. Pappas, a reporter for New York radio station WNEW. From a representative of radio station KBOX in Dallas, Ruby obtained the hotline telephone number to KLIF. He then called the station and told one of the employees that he would like to come up to distribute the sandwiches and cold drinks he had purchased. Observing Pappas holding a telephone line open and attempting to get the attention of District Attorney Wade, Ruby directed Wade to Pappas, who proceeded to interview the District Attorney. Ruby then called KLIF a second time and offered to secure an interview with Wade. He next summoned Wade to his phone, whereupon KLIF recorded a telephone interview with the District Attorney. A few minutes later, Ruby encountered Russ Knight, a reporter from KLIF who had left the station for the police department at the beginning of Ruby's second telephone call. Ruby directed Knight to wait and waited a short distance away while the reporter conducted another interview with the district attorney. End of Section 34 Recorded by Warren Coddy, Gurnee, Illinois